The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. When they pulled up and because of the symptoms I was having, they immediately put me in a wheelchair. And I was thinking, what must Ethan be thinking right now? Is I'm getting wheeled, wheeled into the emergency room. I was so scared for him. And I remember laying in on my bed in the, in the emergency room. I'll just, I'll never forget. He came up to me, put his hand on my arm, and he said, Dad, are you okay? I'm Maura Aarons Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. Each episode, We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. Today on The Anxious Achiever, how the mental affects the physical. Oh, the irony of anxiety. Because today we're going to talk to a guest whose stress and anxiety landed him in the hospital. And you'll hear my story of landing in the hospital, too. But we'll also talk to Dr. David Barlow, who is truly one of the founders, originators, and deep thinkers around modern-day therapeutic treatments for anxiety. He is founder and director emeritus of the Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders at Boston University. Dr. Barlow maintains that anxiety is necessary. The key is to right-size your anxiety, if you will. Find the Goldilocks level of anxiety. Barlow says without anxiety, little would be accomplished. The performance of our athletes, entertainers, executives, artisans, and students would suffer. Creativity would diminish. Our crops and food might not be planted. In fact, we need anxiety to be our best, and I think a lot of you could resonate with that. Well, our guest Jason Miller had always driven himself very hard, the first in his family to go to college, an excellent student, a senior executive at a global company, until he ended up in the ER, convinced he was having a heart attack. So we'll hear Jason's story, learn how he learned how to, quote, embrace the woo. I love that. And right-size his anxiety and his career. So tell us what an average day in your office is like now. So it's something different every day. It's part of what I love about the work I do. Any day might be consisting of doing some one-on-one coaching, doing some extended leadership development education sessions with groups of leaders. We might actually go out to some of our sites. Um, We're a healthcare system based in central Ohio. We have over 15 hospitals in our system. So um, I I do get out to our hospitals on occasion. But um, wide variety of people uh, from all uh, back grounds. I work with both clinical and non-clinical people on um, really great work. People dealing with some tough stuff too, I would imagine. Very much. Uh, Anybody who has ever worked in healthcare, even if you haven't, 
uh, we all have some healthcare experience, right? As human beings, all of us have to go see the doctor at some point in our life, uh, or we have loved ones that we've uh, been um, along the bedside with. So we all know how, how challenging the hospital environment and the healthcare environment can be for us emotionally, spiritually, physically. So your work wasn't always like this. Um, I want you to tell the audience how you became the first person in your family to go to college and um, what your ambitions were when you were growing up. You know, I, I grew up in a family that was very supportive and nurturing. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and my dad worked really hard, a working-class family. You know, what I learned really early on from watching my dad is um, how important it is to support family and, and um, have a purpose that's, that's to create an environment of safety, security, to be able to explore who you are. And what became really clear as we were growing up, I remember the day my dad was laid off from his job at General Motors. I came home and he, I was maybe eight or nine years old and I asked mom, why is dad home? And she said, he got laid off today. And I had no idea what that meant as an eight-year-old kid. What does that mean? Well, he doesn't have work anymore, and we're not sure when he's going to have work again. And I didn't know much, but I knew that wasn't good. (laughs) I also had this kid-like excitement that my dad was going to be around more, (laughs) but that was uh, not the case, really, because he was working too hard to find a way to make money and he decided to start his own business and ultimately that was a struggle for many years it got to a point where we were literally not sure when food was going to come on the table next it became a a prevailing teaching from our my my parents my grandparents and and uh, our teachers and 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 school to their credit too saying you know you you want to have a future you got to go to college you know that's that's the way now and Thankfully, I was suited for that because I was, I love school. So um, I very clearly saw that as a way that I could springboard my life. But I wonder also if this is something you've reflected on, and this is something it seems like our country is reflecting on, that growing up in a generation where the men that you idolize growing up are losing their work and their identity, and I can only imagine the anxiety that those men feel, even if they're not vocalizing it, that that would affect a kid, right? Who gets given a big chance. Man, you hit it right on the head. Um, I know that because I I got emotionally provoked from that that question and that comment. Mm -hmm. It's still going on so strong Mm -hmm. in our country, in our culture. We are not where we are right now without that Rust Belt trauma happened in our culture. I mean, it, you know, I cannot tell you what, what it's like to grow up in an environment where dads and moms don't know who they are and what their values like, right? And um, they'll never vocalize it that way, but there's a sense of it. You know, just growing up in a town like Sandusky, you know, where the downtown, beautiful waterfront, like the whole time I grew up, it was just decaying. Right, the, mm-hmm. just that symbol alone of growing up in that environment and factories that are closed, you know, with uh, caving in roofs and in houses. But you got out 
What did you do after college and where were you going? <laughs> I got out. Yeah, I got out. And, um, you know, I stumbled out of the gate. I didn't know how to find a job in the professional world. I didn't know how to network well. I thought networking was a phony activity. Hmm. My first real job was with a, a startup that was actually a really poorly run startup that ultimately I got fired from. Thankfully, I had enough track record of success in my academic career and belief in myself that I um, I knew I could rebound, and I was determined to do it. So, um, you know, I found the opportunity at Anderson Consultant, uh, Consulting, um, which turned into Accenture, and I was there for quite a long time. And I kind of gave myself to the organization because I said, show me the way. <laughs> I'm ready, right? You know, I fell down. I, I know I got a lot to learn. Show me how to do this well, and I will do it. And and what was it like? What was what was it like? Because you you were there, you you advanced. Talk us through the pace and what it felt like. I hit my stride at Anderson. Um, I uh, plugged into the learning engine. A big reason why people go to the big five firms is to come and teach them the, the fundamental skills to be successful consultant. Mm -hmm. I learned those skills. I was successful in my client work. I started to excel, got promoted within a year and a half, started to lead teams, um, decided when I met my wife, wanted to get off the road and um, took on a new role. And I worked uh, for uh, many years as, a, as the global marketing lead that managed our website for Accenture.com. And then I uh, moved back into what I really wanted to do, which was this organizational development work. But, uh, you know, being in a global environment, you're, you're, um, it's on 24-7, right? So working early mornings, taking conference calls every night was pretty much the norm. And this is a common challenge in global roles. We talked about this a lot at work, how difficult it is to really maintain balance in life when you're on all the time. And increasingly working from home too. Right. So it's an it's a unique kind of stress that comes from that. As I actually got into that role that I was really suited to do, I was really starting to hit some real big success um, in a global role, right? And it's exactly what I wanted and what I envisioned for myself. The only problem is when I actually started to actually experience it, I don't think I really believed I could do it. Why? And that self, old self-doubt yeah. from where I came from. Because I would find myself talking to partners across, you know, literally senior executives across and managing a senior executive team, wondering who the hell's talking right now. <laughs> I, I, it's not me. It was just this, this, this feeling of deception. And that created a lot of inner tension in me. Of course, what happens when you're successful is that people want more of you. And that's exactly what you want, but it becomes a, uh, a monster that can really eat on itself very easily. So, so what happened? Well, I, I didn't have any, any way of coping with it. Um, and as I kind of look back, I 
I was so focused in my head um, on just getting through every day and worrying all the time and starting to lose sleep mm-hmm. that got all bound up inside me. So, you know, as I've learned about the body's response to stress, the body stores stress, right? So it holds stress inside the body. And I didn't, I wasn't aware of this sort of thing. I just thought, you know, yeah, well, I'm tense. So what, you know, <laughs> that's just part of being stressed. And right. It's just, you know, life is stressful. Right. That was what I thought. Right. right? I'm I'm a, I'm a grown man with with a family to support. That's I'm stressed. Yeah, that's just the way it is. Yeah, because <laughs> I grew up in an environment where people were stressed all the time. So, Jason, one night you went to the ER. What happened? Yeah, I found myself suddenly in a condition where I <clears throat> was short of breath, starting to feel like I was going to pass out, tingling in my left arm. Boy, and those sound a lot like symptoms of a heart attack. I got to the emergency room and they immediately admitted me. And I'm in disbelief because I'm I'm really I'm only 40 at the time. And I'm thinking to myself, I really don't know how I got here. It was really scary. I was being treated and they were handling me really well. But I'm laying there and I'm I'm really just in complete disbelief. Um, and my my wife and my my five year old son is is close by as this is all going on. Had your son, you know, I have to say that this happened to me not just re- really recently, and hmm. the ambulance um, came to my house at about seven o'clock, and my children had to watch me get wheeled out, mm. and. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting in the hospital in the ER crying thinking I've ruined mm. my children's lives. They've seen mm. mommy think she was dying. Mhm. I had a similar experience as I uh, because when they pulled up and because of the symptoms I was having, they immediately put me in a wheelchair. Mm. And I remember being in that place too more. I was thinking what must Ethan be thinking mm-hmm. right now is I'm getting wheeled. Wheeled into the emergency room. I was so scared for him. Mm-hmm. What he must be experiencing is he's seeing his dad like this. That was overwhelming. It's still, obviously it's still very overwhelming. Um, and I remember laying in on my bed in the, in the emergency room. And after they had kind of watched me for a while, um, you know, my, my son, Ethan, and um, my wife, Jen, were, you know, were allowed back to come and see me. And I'll just, I'll never forget Ethan coming to my bedside. Yeah. He must have been so happy that you were okay. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he came to my bedside and he, and, and my son is one of the most empathic children I've ever met in my life he even at five years old he he came up to me put his hand on my arm and he said dad are you okay and I just I just I just I just lost it I just lost it like he wanted to know I was okay he was truly wanting to make sure I was okay of course and Mm -hmm. and so what was the diagnosis what happened to you 
they had a, a, a surgeon come um, because of the tingling I had in my left arm. Um, mm. I actually had developed a, a back condition in my stress-induced uh, anxiety over time. Oh, my. Um, and I had this neuropathy in my arm from a, from a pinched nerve in my neck. So uh, the, the, neuro, the, the neurosurgeon came in and looked at me, and that was the other defining moment. He's the one that said to me, from what we looked at your x-rays, there isn't a need for surgery. And as far as your heart condition goes, we can't find any evidence of there being a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me straight in the eye and he said, still hard to say. He said, you have got to get your stress in order or you're going to die young. Oh, my God. Uh, 40. I'm sitting there. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm like, I'm, you know, in my mind, I'm still thinking I'm 25. Yeah. So uh, the combination of Ethan, that face, that small little face, his hand on me, um, and that doctor's warning, that uh, was a true wake up call for me, um, that it was really the first time I really understood the power of the mind over the body. Mm. And I said, I have heard about people, you know, stressing themselves to an early grave, but now I actually see how this works. You could feel it, I'm sure. I, I could feel it in my whole body, in my mind, my body. I could feel it, and it was scary as hell. I, I said, oh, my God, I, I, can, I can literally kill myself. That was the thought that kept me up all night that night in the ER. And, I, and that was that classic dark night of the soul that you have that was the wake-up call that I'm laying there thinking what am I so anxious about mm. why did you did, did you use the word anxious like was anxious the word that connected for you stressed or all of it I think worry was the word I thought of what am I so worried about yeah. what am I so deeply worried about and so I just wrote that night. I got a piece of paper. I asked for a piece of paper and I started writing down all the things that were worrying me. And the list was lengthy. It was, oh, it filled the page and it was extremely excite, insightful to see that list of stuff. I'm like, this is what's happening inside of me, which is why. And all the stories I'm telling myself about how I, I'm a phony and a fake and I'm worried about being caught and not being taken care of and failing and losing money and losing security, losing the house. I mean, literally just yep. the sky Big stuff. could collapse around me. Right. So that was a, a really, really hard moment, but it was, a, it was, it was my wake up call. I literally said to myself, if I have the power to do this to myself, I have the power to do anything I want. I kind of kind of believed it at the time, but not really, <laughs> right? I mean, that sounds I was like a very state. healthy thought for someone sitting in the ER after getting I had them. that thought, but of course, I'm sitting there thinking, this has got to be true, even though I'm not feeling it, yeah. right? Yeah. So I started to think about what I really wanted to be. If this is the price, I said, it is not worth it. And um, after I got out, I decided I was going to take a leave of absence from work. Mm. But was there ever a sense of your mind like, 
okay, they'll be here for me, but if I go back there, this will happen again? Or did that take you a while to get to that place? Oh, I, in the early days of my leave, I said, I can't go back. I was convinced. I was convinced there's no way I can go back there. It will consume me again. Um, I am completely burned out with that place. Um, I can't do it anymore. All those thoughts in that first month, especially, I was telling people that. Mm. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm done. I, I, I was like, I just have to figure out in the next, because I had a three-month leave. It was uh, FMLA. Mm-hmm. 90 days to figure out what I was going to do. And that's how I started the journey. Um, but while I was doing that, I was trying to heal myself. I leaned on just about every possible resource I could get my hands on. I said, what opportunity will I have again in my life to have this time off like this to focus on me mm-hmm. and getting it right? I, I, I reached out to a therapist. Mm-hmm. I started working with a therapist almost immediately. Um, I started working with an executive coach who worked in a deep coaching capacity with me. I learned mindfulness during this time. I took a mindfulness class. I started yoga because my back was in, in, in shambles and the doctor told me that was something that would actually help me both mind and body. Mm-hmm. I started doing physical therapy to get my back strengthened. I allowed myself to kind of do things that gave my spirit life, uh, like going in nature and playing music and you know spending time with Ethan. So um, I truly prioritize myself and I have so much gratefulness to my employer at the time mm-hmm. and my boss especially and my boss's boss was the same they changed my life by supporting me did you go in back? that way the end of the three months as i got stronger and i started to understand my own stories about myself and i had capabilities to manage my stress i started feeling stronger at the end of my three months and i said i think i can do this And I got to try it in the new way. It's just going to follow me where I go. Wherever you go, there you are. There you are. (laughs) Exactly. Yep. Uh, Precisely. So I said, you know, that makes no sense. This by the help of my therapist, quite honestly, helped me to see this. Yeah. Of course, I had a wonderful family support I didn't mention. And Jen, my wife, was enormously supportive during this time. I decided I got to do this. It was scary as hell. I remember the the night before I went back to work. I had an awful nightmare. No, I, I, I wrote it in my journal because I, it was just so awful. It amounted to me literally going into a war-torn territory with uh, who were likely Accenture partners, executives, who literally were taking shots at me, like literally shooting at me. Oh, my God. It was like this apocalyptic kind of setting that I had in my mind. That's how that's how scared I was to go back to work. And I um I said uh, you know I got to do it. You got to do it because why? Because you need the money. You can't let people down. This is your job. You're a grown man. There's some of that, but it it was also a part of my growth. I knew mm. that I had to to go back to face this. Um, not not to be too cliche, but you know, in Star Wars, it's the hero's journey. Luke has to go to the cave to face Darth Vader, right? I mean, you have to face your shadows. I mean, I wasn't stress free, 
that doesn't go away. Stress never goes away. But now I had all these tools and capabilities to manage it more effectively. And I stayed with it. And I was able to talk openly with my boss. Thank God for that. I tried out a new me. And quite honestly, um, I got, you know, I, I also leaned on this new direction. I decided while I was on that leave that I was going to go into executive coaching. That was a healing process for me as well. As a profession. As a, as a big part of what I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In leadership development. Yep. And you also said something. <laughs> you said you learned when we when we talked before, you learned to embrace the woo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I love that. Like, how did yeah. you bring your woo to this very corporate culture? And how did that work for you? It sounds like it worked great. It is. Oh, yeah. I love that you brought that up. Because <laughs> um the more I have embraced my woo-woo, the more power I've had in the work I've done. And I'm just, I'm doing it in spades. Every year I'm getting a little more weird in the work I'm doing. You know, people, I, but I don't think it's weird. I, I feel like we're, it's, it's like exactly. all, it's integrative. Integrative. Exactly. And that's the story we tell ourselves, totally. right? My limiting story I was telling myself was keeping me from giving my gifts. And that was a big part of the racket I had going on. I was suppressing my real self. My my true nature was being suppressed into this identity. I felt like I had to manage and keep up. And you know, of course the the jig is up at some point if you're if if you're doing the big game of deception. It's gonna get you're gonna get caught. But if you're not deceiving people and you're truly being your true nature, there's no deception anymore. So I don't see it as woo-woo at all anymore. It's me. And, you know, I'm like, I'm like, hey, I'm bringing me and I'm rooting in it and you're going to react how you react to it. That's yours, not mine. A few weeks ago, I was sitting on the couch with my kids. It was about seven o'clock at night. And all of a sudden, I felt like I had to go to sleep. My breath became very tight, my vision went blurry, and I felt like I couldn't move my limbs. I started to spin. I was scared for my life and um, went upstairs, laid on my bed, and was so scared, I said to my husband, I think you need to call 911. And um, they came, they came very quickly and uh, took me to the ER because I'm telling you, I thought that I was having a stroke or a heart attack or something terrible. Now, it turns out I was having a really bad panic attack. I've had panic attacks before, and honestly, I did not recognize this one coming. It felt like it hit me randomly, like a bolt of lightning, and I didn't recognize the symptoms. I just felt like I was dying. When I came out of it, and after I had sort of slept it off the next day, I felt emotionally like I had regressed about 35 years. I just wanted someone to come and tell me I didn't have to do anything, that I could sort of leave my life and responsibilities for a few days and be taken care of. I I swear, I just wanted to be a little kid again and, and have my mom take care of me. And when I discussed this a few days later with my therapist, she said, you know, Maura, 
I know that you want to be this powerful, successful person, but maybe that's not who you are. Maybe it's not right for you. And I swear, even though I have, yes, I have written a book about finding the work life that is right for you, not getting on that rocket ship if it's not who you are. I was ashamed when she said that and I wanted to tell her she was wrong and I was nauseous. You know, ambition is a toll. And uh, perhaps for some of us, it's not the right fit. I think that a lot of us, that struggle is what may create a lot of anxiety and uh, for more people than we know end us up in the ER. Recently in New York Magazine, writer Katie Heaney asked a really provocative question about her anxiety. She asked, is my work motivated by drive or fear? She explained how she sets really rigid and aggressive goals for her work day and her output, and she mostly achieves them. But when she doesn't achieve those goals, she feels sick and riven with anxiety. And I think for me, pushing myself to achieve goals that are not the right goals for me is what ended me up in the ER. How do you know you've ever done enough? Not knowing can show up in some scary and some very physical ways. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. It's really an honor to have Dr. David Barlow on The Anxious Achiever. Today, we're going to talk about specific ways to treat anxiety disorders and learn from Dr. Barlow that anxiety itself is not bad. There is a right level of anxiety that we should all have especially as leaders. Dr. David Barlow is founder and director emeritus for the Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders at Boston University. His clinical research focuses on understanding the nature of anxiety and depression and developing new treatments for these disorders. And he will walk us through some examples of treatments for common phobias anxieties that we may feel. But again, I just want to emphasize that he will make you feel better about your anxiety 
the key is right-sizing it. And that is the quest that I think many of us are working on. You have written um, that control is an illusion. And as an anxious person, just reading that scares me. <laughs> how, how does the anxious person person cope with that that concept? Well, objectively speaking, we do not have as much control over events in our lives as uh, perhaps we might think, or certainly uh, as we would like. But there's an interesting difference between people who function well and have no more than uh, moderate anxiety mm -hmm. and people with very severe anxiety about having an illusion of control. Mm. So an illusion of control is a very healthy state of mind. It basically is an attitude or an attribution, a cognition that pretty much anything that comes uh, along that day uh, could be a challenge, but you're going to be able to handle it. The illusion of control will have it that chances are nothing really bad is, is going to happen today. Uh, you don't really expect to run into any situations that you can't handle. Hmm. Well, we know that people who feel that way, that may another, another, another term for that would be uh, optimist. You know, people who really think, you know, that the, the glass is uh, half full, that uh, life is pretty good, that they're doing fine, that they can handle things well, and they're going to come out the other side. We know people with that state of mind are generally, in fact, objectively going to do better in life. They're going to perform better. Can optimism be taught? Yes, absolutely it can be. And that's what procedures such as cognitive behavioral therapy mm -hmm. really focus on. Uh, I don't want to mislead people into thinking anxiety is necessarily a bad thing, right. because it isn't. In fact, it's a very important part of our functioning. But again, if it gets to be very severe, if you feel like, uh, you know, every challenge you confront in your life is out of your control, it is, it is so difficult that you have very little hope of being able to deal with it successfully, to perform at a high level. Or if you're like me, in every routine plane flight you take, you expect to crash. Yep. If you have that uh, attribution, even though rationally you probably realize that flying <laughs> yes. is the safest way to travel. <laughs> yes, I've heard that much, before. Much safer than driving. You'd have to fly every day consecutively for 32,000 years before the odds would come up that your plane would crash. <laughs> so that's the realistic odds. But uh, nevertheless, yeah, if you have these kind of uh, negative attributions and uh, thoughts of catastrophes coming up, we call people like that catastrophizers, and there's a lot of us. Are you one? I have some very good friends and other people close to me who are. <laughs> <laughs> you love some catastrophizers, okay. That's right, yeah. <laughs> but I certainly am anxious mm. from time to time during the day. But, you know, ha again, having uh, some anxiety in your life, that's what's going to ensure that, first of all, you're going to be prepared for, let's say, the next lecture or the next uh, business meeting or the next encounter, mm -hmm. and that you are going to, uh, let's say, perform at your best in that kind of setting. Right. Uh, so anxiety really 
can be a friend. It's a very important part of our functioning. Without it, we would not be performing well at all, and we would get very little done. What, what about what about those of us though? Um who have almost, I think the term is defensive pessimism, you know, and who have, have cultivated over many years, even decades sometimes, the sense that if only I expect the worst, it won't happen. Um, I, that's hard to relearn, isn't it? Yeah, it's sort of the notion, you know, be prepared for the worst, and if I think about the worst, at more moderate levels, that's a very adaptive function. Let's let's talk about phobia for a sec. Um, one thing I, I heard um, from a listener, which which actually it was around nine eleven, um, that they had a phobia of elevators, yep. um, which I'm sure you hear a lot, and that it was it was really hard. Now imagine that person is about to get offered a new job, but it's on the forty first floor of a building, and they have to take that elevator multiple times a day, and it triggers their phobia. Right. What happens? How do you treat them? Well, in that case, um, we move, you know, we talked about cognitive behavioral therapy, Mm -hmm. and we move to the behavioral Mm. side of things. We're still dealing with what you're thinking about it. I mean, if if you ask them what they're really thinking, and often they don't really know at first, but when we explore it with them, they'll say, well, I might be trapped, and they may run out of oxygen, and I'll suffocate. So, um, you know, we go through the same sort of thing. Well, what's the probability of that? And, you know, the process I described earlier. But then, you know, these are not rational thoughts, as you know. So um, we might do some imaginal actual experiencing of flying. Uh, Okay, now pretend you're on a plane. Now pretend, you know, imagine that the plane is lurching. Imagine that you hear these sounds. Then we we might take the next step and do a virtual reality. And there's a lot of, you know software that allows us to yeah. actually, you know, feel like you're flying and it's getting more and more realistic, the Oculus and various programs out now. But finally, at our clinic, we have uh, uh, organized for a pilot out at a local airport to have a small plane ready for a graduation flight <laughs> where after we get the, you know, people, and these are typically people who haven't flown for years. Wow. So they'll be able to, you know, get on the plane. The pilot is very good at this. He'll explain everything to them and fly around a little bit. And they might do that several times. And what will happen is that, uh, you know, what the person has learned about the uh, probabilities uh, will kick in and the fear will, as we say, uh, extinguish, you know, Mm. greatly reduce. And I would imagine also you could ride in an elevator in a skyscraper with someone or take the subway or, or oh, tea yeah. or, or whatever. Exactly. So we do that. We do that quite a bit. What would you say to a hiring manager that they should know if they're hiring someone with an anxiety disorder that, that might be triggered by these very specific incidences? Well, I think the, uh, it's important to remember that you want to be moderately anxious. Yeah. You know, moderate anxiety is your friend. You know, that's going to be with you and... I'm putting that on a bumper sticker. I need to remember that. <laughs> right. And, and a lot of people do. You know, I mean, people spend, you know, billions of dollars trying to eliminate their anxiety. And, and uh, you, no, you don't want to eliminate your anxiety. You know, anxiety is there for a reason. It's a normal human emotion. And it serves a function. 
you know, it serves a purpose, just like fear does, you know. Fear is a very useful emotion if uh, there's something really to be afraid of. Hmm. Anxiety is more about what's going to happen in the future. Right. Anxiety has been called for a long time, early on, one of the psychologists called anxiety the shadow of intelligence hmm. because of the planning function of anxiety. It helps you plan for the future. Anybody, <clears throat> it's very natural to be anxious in a situation like that. You know, you want to do your best, so you're, that's what anxiety is for. And I think a good HR person will know that if they, and many, this is what many of them do, and we all do this in interviews, you know, if we start off with some casual conversation, you know, the events of the day, how was your trip in, mm-hmm. sort of get people talking, and then you slip into some of the more substantive stuff, then you've got people's attention, they're focusing on your conversation. When you're going to get the occasional, uh, you know, highly anxious person to freeze, if they walk into the office and then you're sitting behind your desk and you're not smiling and you say something like, tell me why you should uh, get this job. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> tell me why I should hire you. Or, then, or they don't look up from their email. <laughs> exactly. If they say something like that. And, and then you're, you're likely to get a freezing up. Hey, Achievers, any Big Lebowski fans out there? I have been blown away by the feedback that I've gotten from you about this show. It really touches me, and um, <laughs> you have sent me tips about everything from doing yoga um, <laughs> to, to um, books I could read, people I could talk to, I feel like we're on a journey together, and I'm really grateful for your feedback, and I I want to hear more of it. I'd also love to hear any questions that you'd like me to take up, types of guests you'd like to hear from or issues you'd like me to talk about. So if you have something to say, and it, it doesn't have to be good, I am working on accepting critical feedback. You could email anxiousachiever at gmail.com. Again, if you have feedback for the show or for me, email anxiousachiever at gmail.com. That's it for this week's show. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and submit a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Special thanks to the team at Harvard Business Review, my producer Mary Dew, and our incredible guests who tell their stories from the heart. From the HBR Presents Network, I'm Maura Aarons-Amelie, and this is The Anxious Achiever. <laughs>